Today's guest has been in the arts pages a lot lately, as much for her institutional leadership and vision as for her own considerable artistic achievements. As the artistic director of Arena Stage, one of this country's oldest and most respected resident theaters, she has led the organization into the 21st century with the opening of the new Mead Center for American Theater, seemingly and literally miles away from her earlier role as founder and artistic director of Perseverance Theater in Juneau, Alaska. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet Molly Smith on her home turf at Arena Stage. (laughs) Hello, Howard. With any construction project, there's always a punch list. You're now month or so into using the new facility fully. Uh, Anything not quite done yet? Well, amazingly enough, because the man at the center of this, our facilities coordinator, really uh, more like a general on this, Guy Berquist, uh, who was a conduit between Clark Construction, the architect, Bing Tom, and his company, and Arena Stage, we have opened the building on time and on budget Two months ago, we had a punch list of around 800. Today, two months later, we have a punch list of about six. That's not bad. So let me ask you the other question. Very often when people build new buildings, they get it all done and they go, oh, God, we forgot about that. Have there been any oh, God moments? There actually haven't, and it's perhaps because we had a gestation period of about 10 years where we've been working on the project. So there were many critical turning points within that 10-year period of time, including a point about uh, four years ago where when we went out to find out how much it would cost to actually construct this beautiful new center, it was about $25 million more than we knew we could raise. So we had to go in and value engineer, uh, which had to do with really changing a lot within the theaters, but nothing as far as programming. So I think because the period of time where we've been thinking and uh, developing and creating uh, these new spaces, a lot has been vetted through that process. I think the only thing that that I'm now, um, my own personal punch list, are things like, okay, that was really the wrong color of paint on this kind of floor. We need to go with a a darker gray. It's too light. It's picking up dirt downstairs. I mean, things like that, but minuscule in comparison to a new center that has gone from arena stage with 88,000 feet to 200,000 feet of space. So, And now having, uh, in this moment, two productions running, 15,000 people came in to the arena homecoming. We've had a lot of people in and through the building, and it works beautifully. The planning for this seems to have begun within the very first couple of years that you arrived as artistic director. You got here in 98, and the timeline your PR office gave me said that the first conversations and planning discussions began in 2002. Did you walk in here and say, gee, I like it, but I want to change it? Well, I would go back even further than that. Um, This uh, first happened when I was meeting with the search committee of the board in 1997. I came back a few times to have conversations 
I also came back to see the theater. When I was a student in the 70s, I had a mini-season ticket to Arena Stage because I've always loved uh, what, what Arena does, and it was a real beacon for me in the city. And I was shocked at how neglected uh, the theater spaces were, the outside of the theater was, and I knew whoever came in in this position would really need to uh, help drive movement toward uh, something new for the theater. And so that was in my early discussions with the board. The day I set foot here at Arena in 1998, probably within a week, uh, there were some board members who felt that the theater needed to move downtown, other board members who wanted to keep it here at 6th and Main. Uh, we were in conversations about that the first year, really heavy, difficult conversations. And at the end of that year, made the decision because of finances that we would stay here at 6th and Main and rebuild boldly. So that was my entire time at Arena Stage. This has been... Um, a major uh, focus for me and a major creative, artistic, and also management focus. Well, that raises a question, which is how much of your time in your tenure thus far has been institution building, not just physical construction building, as opposed to exploring the work that you personally wanted to explore as an artist? I would say that the work that I've done organizationally and through the through the building project has probably been about I don't know and and I would also in, have within that artistic strategy which I've been working with really in a focused way with David Dower who's our extraordinary associate artistic director I'd say that's been 75% of my time hmm. and I may be uh, a different type of artistic director. I've always read a lot of management books. I've been very curious and interested in infrastructure and the way in which organizations work. I've been actually fascinated with it. And I have a bifurcated brain. Uh, left side and right side of my brain seem to work uh, in tandem with each other. Although I will say at a certain uh, point in the fundraising of uh, making this new center uh, happen, I had to move away from activities, uh, brain activities were, that were taking me away from the artistic life of the organization. And the way I described it is I, you know, I have these white spaces in my brain, and they're either going to be filled with uh, strategy that has to do with how we move this forward or it's going to be filled with artistic ideas. There, there's Yes, there's always more brain space, but at a certain point, um, that actually isn't true. And when I look at this, I think of how much of my artistic and creative life has been funneled into, really, the creation of this. Because this is it's a huge creative act. And it's a huge creative act for me, for the architect being Tom, for the staff, for the board, for the... We probably had, I'd say, 30 or 40 engineers and architects working on this. Hmm. And uh, that meant meetings in Vancouver uh, with teams of 30 to 40 people, uh, really making sure that the vision uh, was always clear and always in front of everybody. 
um, meetings with the architect. He really is a boutique architect in a lot of ways, which means he has a lot of care and feeding to ensure that the that the person and the organization that he's working with really moves into um, where they need to go through the embodiment of, bu- of a building. I mean, this this building is the embodiment of the mission statement of being deep and dangerous in the American spirit. It's the embodiment of what we're doing artistically within the organization. It's an embodiment of where I believe um, audiences want to go in this next century. And so all of those ideas were fed into this building. And what Bing Tom was able to do so brilliantly is to find the architectural gesture to really create a a center that has a theatrical energy, almost like electricity, throughout the entire building. I don't want to lose something you just said, which is that your mission statement includes the words to be deep and dangerous in the American spirit? Yes. Mission statements are usually stunningly bland and generalized. That's not bland or generalized. Can you tell me what that means? I think that it means that as an American theater and as a theater focusing on American work, what we really want to do is to produce a broad range. I call it the broad shoulders of American work. And by that, it's work that's passionate, it's bitchy, it's troubling, it is joyous, it is muscular, and one of the phrases in the mission statement, because some of these other words are in the mission statement as well. Is bitchy in the mission statement? I don't know if bitchy <laughs> is. I don't know if bitchy is. That would but be it's, first. But it's, but it's the idea of that, that you know, our American voices, whether they be our writers or whether they be our artists, they're as distinctive as this country is. And so deep and dangerous in the American spirit really has to do with that huge element of risk one has to have to be a modern theater. And by risk, I mean that's new work. That means that that's premieres. It means it's taking the American classics and really allowing them to be reinterpreted for this moment. So that's that's the danger. Let's take a few minutes and go from Arena Stage more to Molly Smith. You are originally from Washington State and your family moved up to Alaska when you were 16. Now, tell me, pretend I'm completely ignorant, which I am, of Juneau, Alaska. Set the scene for me of what you found when you were moved there at age 16. My family is really a Western family, whether it's been Montana, Idaho, Washington State. My mother was a social worker and brought my sister and I, Bridget, up with my grandmother. My father died about four months before I was born. He was a clinical psychologist, massive heart attack at the age of 33. And in some ways, I feel like I've continued to do some of his work because theater is about group work. And he was one of the early investigators of uh, work that really had to do with group therapy. And even though I don't think theater is therapy, it can be therapeutic because art heals. 
So my mother had hit a glass ceiling in the kind of work that she was doing as a social worker. I'm 16. My sister's 18. We're going to be going to college. And she made the radical decision to move my sister and I to Alaska for money and for adventure. And this is somebody who had lived in Yakima, Washington for much of her life, except for the time she was on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. And so um, I was completely for it. I I always felt in Yakima that I was um, not of the world of Yakima. Yakima is a beautiful farming community. It was all uh, irrigated uh, farms from World War II. It's really the fruit center of the country. You know, the apples that you eat are probably, if they're if they're not from overseas, they're probably from Yakima. You know, the beautiful melons, the tomatoes that you can eat with salt from the, you know, side uh, farm stands. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, the kinds of grapes, the wineries that have opened in that area of the, of the world. But I always felt out of it. I thought that I would end up in Seattle because even as a young person, I was really interested in the theater. That was something, I was like a homing pigeon uh, toward the theater. From what exposure? Well, my grandmother, when she was in high school, was an actor. And at that time, to be an actor, have a profession of the actor, was akin to almost being you know, a vagabond, a prostitute. And um, when she was married, and she was married at a fairly young age, I think she was maybe 19 years old when she met my grandfather, who was a lawyer. And uh, she got married, and her mother and her father said to her about a year later, you know, Catherine, we never understood why you didn't go to New York to go further with your work as an actor. So I've got that in my bloodlines, too, you know, operating back there. A grandmother who hadn't completed what her work was. A mother, my mother, who's still very much alive, um, who is very theatrical, and also, at a certain point when I moved into theater, she moved more into theater. But in Yakima, Washington, was there theater to see? Um, there was a little theater. There was a teen theater. I went to Catholic schools, St. Joseph's and uh, St. Paul's. Uh, St. Joseph's was an all-girls school. And uh, there was theater in both. I mean, this, this was a time when there was actually arts education in the schools. This was also a time when... Uh, the sisters would take all of us over to the high school to see Bye Bye Birdie. This was a time when the sis- when my mother would take me to see a touring production of Robert Goulet and Camelot, which I remember every single element of it. So for whatever reason, I was attracted to theater early on. So naturally, where I thought I would end up would be the biggest city near us, which was Seattle. Right. So Juneau, Alaska was not on the menu. Well... I was 16. Right. I wasn't going to make the decision for my mother about where she was going to move. And I was up for the adventure, too. So my mother moved first, and then I flew in. And I flew into what I thought was an absolutely desolate place. We flew and flew and flew and flew and flew and flew. And I looked out the window, and it was mountains and fjords and ice and snow, and it went on forever. I mean, it was probably only a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Seattle, but it felt like it went on forever. And then flying in, one has to fly into Juneau and 
fly over a shaved mountain and do a dog leg, which is a turn to the right. You're almost at a right angle uh, to the uh, runway and then, you know, plop onto the runway. But we should say, for those who don't know their geography, that this is southern Alaska. It's not, we're not talking, this is below Anchorage and certainly way below a place like Barrow. So you hadn't gone to the northernmost tip. Right. But, but right. it was still pretty alien. Well, well, but that's, that would be the next part of the story. Oh, really? Absolutely. That would be the next part of the story. So when I came to Juneau, I was completely unhappy, miserable, but I didn't want to tell my mother because I just said, oh my God, this, you know, it's a place where people are walking down the street with rifles. It's, you know, they're all wearing hunter's clothes. They're, you know, I went to school. It was girls and boys in the school. It was a public school. I felt, um, you know, all of these uh, feelings and very hard to make friends. Um, But within about six months, I completely fell in love with it. I fell in love with the mountains. I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the fact that if I had an idea or if I wanted to do something, people would say yes. And that's Alaska to me. That's about the mountains, how big the mountains are. And uh, I think I carry mountains inside of me. you know. So in coming there, I graduated from high school. I met my high school sweetheart, who I then married uh, within about, I don't know, four years. Then went up to the uh, University of Alaska in Fairbanks, where it is 70 below and your hair breaks off, where you have to plug your car in. Um, went out with people who were snow machine racers, uh, dog team races. Um, you know, it's, it's a world where having an outdoor toilet is the way to go. I mean, it's it's the frontier, you know. It's kind of the beginning of the frontier in Alaska. Southeast Alaska is uh, a northern rainforest, which is, that's where Juneau is. It's quite rare. It rains or snows 10 feet a year. Hmm. But as you keep going up north, of course, what you get is you get more snow, more ice, more tundra. The state, if you were to actually lay it end-to-end on a map of the United States, it's a fifth the size of the United States when it all winds its way out. There are only half a million people who live in an area, well, in the country, it's the most isolated place you can get. So you have pockets of populations Hmm. all all over the state, and half the population is in Anchorage. But when we talk about Perseverance Theater, I'll talk about touring and things like that. Well, I want to move relatively quickly through. You went to the University of Alaska pre-law. Yes. What was the epiphany that said you'd had the theater interest? Why didn't you pursue that, I should ask first? Well, I think it's a family trait that my family uh, contains lawyers, judges, and uh, people that are involved in um, social programming like social workers. My dad is a clinical psychologist. And uh, even though I had this love for theater, I really felt that law was the place where I needed to go. I was a, I was a debater, oral interpretation and all the rest of it. You know, I had a real love for language and thought, oh, maybe I, maybe I need to be a courtroom lawyer. I mean, I was a kid. And uh, left the University of Alaska 
after I'd been there for a year to travel uh, through Europe for three or four months with a friend of mine. We were backpacking during the Vietnam War with American flags on our backpacks. So you can imagine the conversations we got into. But while I was in Europe, and this is what happens often for me when I travel, um, big decision came. And that decision was I was going to move away from pre-law and start a theater in Alaska. And I was 19. So your decision was to start a theater. Then the decision came to study theater? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you ended up going to college here in Washington, D.C., where a number of members of your family had gone, correct? That's, that's absolutely right. My grandfather was the youngest person to ever graduate from Georgetown at that time. Hmm. He was 19, very young, and then went directly into World War One after that. Um, my dad, uh, Catholic U, my mom, Catholic U, my uncle, Georgetown, I mean, a Big group. It's almost as if my family finishes school in the East. Western family finishes school <laughs> in their East. And uh, while I was here, I went to Catholic U, transfer student, uh, met Paula Vogel there, uh, who became a very close friend of mine, and then uh, went to American University for my graduate degree and met Joy Zinneman, who also had a major impact on me. But I would really say that where I really learned about the theater was not within the university work. It was within uh, creating my own internship. So I would go to a small theater like New Playwrights Theater that was here in Washington, D.C., and I said, teach me how to read plays. So I was on a play reading committee. And they also had me washing floors and washing glasses. Um, you know, I think... What people don't realize about the theater is it's a, it's a craft, and you also pay your dues as you move through it. But I wanted to learn everything about theater and how to make theater because I knew when I went back to Juno that I would need to teach. Help me to understand, just because it informs the conversation later, what was the theater scene in Washington at the time? Arena stage was in existence. Arena Stage is now in its 60th year. Yes. Um, and so certainly it was the big game in town, along with, in that era, still presumably major Broadway tours. Yes. Doing tryouts. Major Broadway tours. At the time I was here, that was a moment when the Kennedy Center opened, and I think it opened in 73. I also was um, here when there were, I would say, 10 theaters. 10 small theaters. There was Back Alley Theater. There was Asta. Um, there was the West End that was more of a booking house. So a small group of theater. There, right. there was Olney. And uh, that was my playground. So I would go into a theater like Asta that was uh, really a wonderful experimental theater. And I said to them, show me how to use your box office. And I'd like to stage manage. So basically, I created my own internship. Now we have internships in all of our theaters for young people to come in and learn. But in that moment, there were none. So The people who were running most of the theaters were barely above interns themselves if they were small theaters. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. But there was so much to be learned. And then um, my former husband, Bill Ray, and I, um, we were – he had – Finished. He'd been in the Naval Academy and had finished his service here in Washington, D.C. So we were set to move back uh, to Juneau 
And about a month or two before we moved back, a friend of mine who was the artistic director of the ASTA uh, called and said she had 50 used theater seats. And did I want them? And so you took them to Alaska. (laughs) And thus a theater is born. How long did it take you from the time you got back to Juneau until you could make Perseverance a reality? It was really fast. I thought it would take five years. I had been an actor, and then I'd moved into directing and stage managing, and I I thought I may have to do all three to get this started. And I'd been talking to family and friends about this ad nauseum for that seven-year period of time uh, since I was 19. I was 26. And uh, came back to Juno, and the right people just met the right people. Boom, 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 boom. Um, my mother introduced me to someone who worked with her with health and social services. And I thought, oh, God, I'm not going to like anybody my mother introduces me to. She's now my best friend. That's Kate Bounds, who had done theater for years in Bellingham. Then she introduced me to a man uh, who always came by her hot dog stand. She has that, had that as, a, as another job who uh, was a great fisherman, but he also happened to be somebody who loved Shakespeare. And he was a lighting designer, and he had the potential to be a lighting designer. I met somebody else through teaching an improvisational class, uh, Jack Cannon, who was a very good carpenter and was just really interested in theater. So we just started gathering people around us, and pretty soon there was a core of six of us. And um, the first uh, production was uh, pure gold uh, because I wanted something that was important to the to the community. And uh, well, let's explain what that was. That was something that you developed through interviews with about thirty five members of the community there. Yeah, yeah. Because my sister had asked me a really powerful uh, question. We were walking through the woods, and I said, "I'd." I don't know what to start the theater with because beginnings are so important. It has to be something that's right. And we had a name by that point. We had Perseverance Theater at that point. We had the people who wanted to work on it and because I kept saying it has to be of and by and about Alaskans. And then the next step was uh, what was the theater piece. And I had done um, a project as soon as I came back uh, with uh, called The Miracle Worker, which is very familiar to all of your audience, uh, with a little theater. And uh, I said, boy, I feel like it needs to be something really different, Bridget, to start the theater. And she said, why don't you do something about old people, you know, people who've been here forever. And I said, oh, I don't like the gin game. That doesn't feel right. And then we started talking about the pioneers of the area. And she said, why don't you do something about them? And it all fell into place. I love the fact that in an interview, you thought it was going to be, you see, you've said now, even in retrospect, you thought it was going to be a huge bomb. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Uh, I did think it was going to be a huge bomb. Not in the interviewing process. I mean, the stories were fantastic. These were great storytellers. They were 70, 80, 90. These were people who had sold pies on the Chilkoot Trail. They were Native Americans. It's the Clinkett people in that part of the country who'd been there for 
thousands of years. It was the Filipinos who'd come up uh, in, in the in the mines. It was the whites who had come up as prospectors and uh, going out to search for gold. I mean, it, it was incredible. It was the history of the state. That's who I was talking to. And then a friend of mine, Susie Greg Fowler, put it together in a reader's theater piece. And then I went back and cast the best storytellers, the seven best storytellers. And then I began a rehearsal process. And we were in a church social hall doing the rehearsal process. And as time went on, I felt like it's going to be worse and worse and worse. It was reader's theater, so they had the scripts in front of them. And it was just this... You know, it was a through line of the stories in the the history of this part of um, this part of the state, and uh, I just thought, oh my God, this is this is going to be um, a total and absolute flop. I'll be run out of town on a rail. It is so boring. And Let me ask you though, was it the people? You're saying it was the history of the state, but what is it? The history of the state through people all from Perseverance? Or had you gone farther afield for the interviews? Oh, there were people that I spoke to who had lived in many parts of the state. But in general, they were people who had spent a lot of their life in Juneau. Well, the fact is, it was a huge hit. And of course, what you'd probably done unwittingly is what every high school drama teacher does. Since you were telling the stories of people who people knew in high school, it's how many kids do you cast and how many neighbors have to go watch them in the show, everybody wanted to hear their neighbors' stories. Right, right. And I think there was actually a larger core within that. I think that that's absolutely part of it. But I think another part of it was, at that time, this was in, what, 78, 79, a remarkably young state. Most people who lived there were probably 30. They'd all been drawn up because of the icons of what Alaska is. It was as if they were sitting around a fire listening to their grandparents tell these stories. And in the beginning, we just put 50 theater seats out and then 75 and then 100 and then... And it just kept going on and on and on. And what I had forgotten is these were great storytellers. And as soon as they began telling their stories to the audience, of course, they just lit up and it was a huge success. It eventually ran, I don't know, 200, 300 times. Wow. It was uh, filmed. It traveled around the state. We uh, eventually had... Three groups of rotating senior citizens. We worked with the um, with the uh, tour people that were starting to come into the state to have it running all the time. It truly is what built the theater. And with that first little short run, it was probably three or four weekends. At the end of that time, I said to my friend Kate, "We have to have a place for our stuff because we were we were renting a place." And she said. I know a great bar, uh, you know, over in Douglas. I hear that they want to rent it. And uh, we drove over that night. We looked at it. I thought it was perfect. It was $800 a month. It used to have the best pool table in town. Now it was a liquor store. And we took it and we renovated it in 18 days. Hmm. And I used to call it the Miracle Theater. And that's where Perseverance Theater physically was born and where it still is to this day. Of course, much larger. You know, there's another theater attached to it. There's offices. There's a lot of other things. So, obviously, we can't, in the time we have allotted, spend 
a lot of time on the 19 years of Perseverance Theatre, but what I find so fascinating is that you were not... You mentioned earlier that your lighting designer, I think, was very interested in Shakespeare, or was it the carpenter was interested in Shakespeare, but you weren't doing standard repertory fare. Right. Certainly, you you weren't um, looking at Moliere and Ibsen and things like that, and very quickly, you were doing work and developing work by people like your college classmate, Paula Vogel. There was a little theater. You said you'd done Miracle Worker there. Was there acceptance for this material immediately? Because it was all new to them, presumably. I think there absolutely was acceptance immediately. I think people were thrilled. I think people are always drawn to good work. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of the work that we were doing was really creative, we were building theater pieces. Uh, we built one piece that was all based on the first part of the Bible called Genesis. We built another piece called Wonderland that was about Alice in Wonderland, but was really about our political system that we did out in an airplane hangar. Um, we moved our audience around. And I think Alaskans are really, they're adventurous people. We always had a focus on the native people of the state as well because it was about Alaskans. That's really what I wanted. So that made it essentially a modern theater. We did a lot of touring. First year, we were packed all the time. People wanted to come in and see what we were doing. And then it became, well, how can we get this out to other people in the state? So we started touring on the ferry system. And then pretty soon we were touring in beaver planes that were going into beaver planes or World War II planes that were going into small fishing communities where we would take over Quonset huts and make a theater. We were like this little jewel that would be landing in a community of 500 and for a weekend bring theater to a community and then fly back out. But presumably in those cases, you were doing the work that was very rooted in the Alaskan experience. Not necessarily. I mean, you would literally fly in and perform... Taming of the Shrew. Absolutely. We would we would literally fly in and do the importance of being earnest in a mining community. Hmm. Um, we would literally fly in and do Coyote Builds North America up in Fairbanks and then going all the way out into Nome and Kotzebue with it, hmm. into, um, into school systems. I mean, while I was there, we toured about 90 times, including hmm. some international touring. Do you think some of that flexibility came from the fact that you were in developing territory there wasn't already a road map for what theater should be in that area well i always think of the difference between western mind and eastern mind i think western mind is about making history because it hasn't been done before because it keeps moving further and further west i think eastern mind is more how does one fit oneself into history so I think that there's a different a different context between the two. Help, help me understand. F- when you say Western and Eastern, are you referring to... The country. This country. Yes. Okay, it's not Western thought versus... No, no, no. Versus, I'm talking say, about Asia. this country. Okay. Because if we're looking at, you know, westward movement in this country, which the furthest west you can get is the Pacific Northwest, right? It's still in the process of becoming. It keeps becoming. I think that's what I meant earlier when I said people always said yes, right? I'd like to try this. Yes, 
I'd like to make this happen. Yes. On the East Coast, it's more, well, that's been done before. Well, you might be able to fit this in here. Well, I, I like both conversations. But I think because of that, in Juneau, I had people around me who were innovators, and they were leading at the same time I was leading, saying, yes, let's go ahead and try this. Here's a need, and let's meet it. Okay, but that wasn't being done by other theaters around the around Alaska. That was being done by Perseverance Theater. Right. So that had to do with the distinction of what that particular theater was doing. Because I want to come back to Arena Stage, I want to ask you one more question about the time at Perseverance, and it's very specifically about your work as a theater artist. Yes. Given what you've just said about the fact that there's a school of thought about how do you fit into history, how did you come to understand, or did you, or did it matter to you, how you were developing your talents as a stage director? In Alaska, because I was not next to a city, the development happened in relationship to the people and the environment. So my own work as a theater artist uh, was really internal and in response to the world that I was in. From very early ages, we were also bringing up uh, wonderful theater artists to teach, whether it was people like Anne Bogart or Joanne Acolytus. Um, that, the, that was always important uh, to me, bringing in uh, people from outside, which is the way you describe it in Alaska, the people from outside as opposed to inside, who really could help teach and train and uh, move the artistic thinking process forward. We did that a lot. It was important to me. It was important to me to go out. I went out a lot to learn. I went out to shadow and uh, watch uh, director's work. I was always really um, a student of that. Uh, traveled a lot overseas, went around the world twice uh, to watch Ariane Mnuchin's work, to watch Peter Brook's work. Um, I, again, all of those influences are important to me and then bring that back into a place that is very isolated and uh, where one can do one's work. So when you get a phone call saying, hello, we're doing the search for the new artistic director of Arena Stage back in 1998. You certainly weren't sitting upon a sheaf of New York Times reviews of your work or any of the conventional uh, accoutrements that somebody would have in seeking a position of this stature. And indeed, you weren't necessarily seeking it. They came to you. What was your immediate reaction? My immediate reaction is, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, the headhunter said, no, we really are interested in you. And I said, but why, Greg? And he said, because you share common values with Arena. Hmm. I said, well, that's really interesting because I learned so much from watching the work of Arena. And I had really moved Howard into film work and had been doing film work about two years before I left Arena. And I thought that that was my next creative focus. 
And the reason why is because I felt in film that the people that I was having discussions with were having the most interesting discussions about the world. And I thought this may be the next avenue for my expression as a creative artist. And so I knew internally that I was going to need to uh, leave Perseverance Theater within the next year or so. And so when the phone call came and he said that, he said, what do you think? And I said, you know, I've received phone calls like this before. And I've always said, I haven't finished my work. And I said, this is the first moment that I can say, I've finished my work here. And I thought I was moving to something else. And there would be so few theaters in the country that I would even have a desire to be part of. And Arena Stage is one of them. Well, the sheer fact that you'd lived here in Washington for seven years would would affect that. Obviously, one goes through a search. You have several conversations. I don't know whether they flew board members from here out to Alaska to see what you had built out there. Um, but once you got the job, you were coming back. I mean, I assume you'd visited over the years. But I asked you what the theater scene was like in Washington when you were in school yes. and after school. Yes. How had the theater scene here in Washington, D.C. changed? It had exploded. There were 70 theaters. Signature, Studio, Woolly Mammoth. I mean, it was unbelievable. A theater company that was starting that would eventually become Synetic Theater. Rorschach. I mean, I, I could I could just go on. And the theaters that had been here were still here. Uh, Roundhouse only had really morphed into something new. And uh, that was absolutely thrilling to me because I think great theater cities have many different kinds of theaters. Um, a really interesting guy from the Seattle area always used to talk about how theater communities grow like grapes. They grow in bunches. They grow in clusters. And I think it's because the theaters are bouncing off each other and really having conversations. And a healthy theater community is one where you have major organizations, they have medium-sized theaters, and you have small theaters. And Washington, D.C. has all of that. So it has all of the elements to be a great theater town except one. All of the elements except one. So what's the one? I think the one is that truly great theater um, towns have working writers that are writing in those cities. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to that yeah. because obviously you sought to address that. But as you talk about how theater towns develop, there's also an aspect because of the way the Lort system grew up in, in the 1960s. Many of those theater communities and those smaller theaters grew up in opposition to the big established yes. theater. Yes. They were going to address what the big theater was not. Yes. So given your background of yes. adventurousness, it seems sort of contrarian to come in and take over the big resident theater. I mean, Shakespeare theater is important, but it doesn't have the history, right. it doesn't have the imprimatur that Arena Stage has not only on Washington, but on theater nationally. Well, the idea of focusing on American voices really came out of my conversations with the search committee. 
you going all the way back to that because i asked them what what is the problem what are you what are you seeking you know who are you who are you seeking you know what is the type of person you're looking for and they said well because of what has happened in washington dc because there are so many theaters we feel that arena stage has lost its distinctive brand who the theater is and uh, I've always followed Arena's work, so I, you know, I I knew just, you know, every year or two, I knew about a production or two that had been done there. And um, I said, "Is it is it the aesthetic? Is is that what it is?" And they said, "Well, we just we just feel that Arena is the first, and yet because all the other theaters have have developed." that they have taken on more focused roles as far as the theater. But Arena is still doing many things. And so I went out that day that I was having a conversation with the search committee when we were all on lunch, and I went into a bookstore, and everything that was falling out to me uh, was American writers. So it was John Barr's Sotweed Factor. It was uh, John Steinbeck. It was contemporary writers. And I went back in very, very excited with this idea, and I said, here's where I think Arena needs to focus. Whether it's me or anybody else, needs to have a focus on American work. So I just started spinning that out about what that could be, you know, with the seminal American musical, with um, great American writers, with contemporary writers, with new writers. Because new writers is really, that's been my lifeblood for 35 years. It's always been about living writers, as well as moving into more uh, the American giants as well. And um, when I came back to meet with them a second time, because I was surprised when they called me. There was a field of eight out of 50. Um, So I was part of the eight. And I was surprised when I got a phone call, again, from the headhunter saying, you're down to four. We're down to four. And I said, what's stopping them from selecting me? And he said, okay. Okay. He said, a couple things. Um, They don't know your work. They have no idea how you'd move from a $1 million operation into a, you know, at that time, I think Irina was probably 10 or 11 million. You know, how could you make that jump? And they're really fascinated with the way in which you work with various communities. They don't understand how that works. Because in Alaska, we'd be working with the Filipino community on a project. We'd be working with community out in Tuksuk Bay on a project. And they were, at that time, now remember this is, 12, 13, this is 13 yeah. years ago. At that time, community work was a dirty word in the theater. Yet, Washington, D.C., is famously considered a divided city by economic strata and by racial diversity. So I would think the fact that you've done that kind of work Mm -hmm. in Alaska, first you said fascinated, then they said, you know, concerned. Was it that they were worried that you would diversify the theater? Oh, I don't think that was it. No, I think what they, I think they were, I think that they were really interested because they felt as if um, Arena was insular. And how does Arena reach out to various communities? So, in fact, that was probably your biggest plus. The fact that they hadn't seen your work, you were not going to be able to solve that easily. But, but you had experience, as you say, at a time where connecting with communities 
maybe wasn't a buzzword, though Though I would say there were theaters that were starting to have those conversations at that time. Starting to have them, but it was a national yeah. joke, quite frankly. Okay. I mean, I was in NEA funding sessions where there were huge fights about it and people saying it is only arts for art's sake and, uh, you know, we'd be the little lone voice in the back of the room. So that was all happening at that time. Hmm. You know, people were really looking askance at that. So when I went back to meet with them again, there were a couple things uh, that I did. First of all, I brought back a huge slideshow of all my work, along with the environment of Alaska, to give people a taste of where I came from. I just love that the fact that we're talking about 13 years ago and you're using the word slideshow, which <laughs> we wouldn't use anymore. Well, then it was a slideshow, right? A slideshow. Yeah. And then I also drew big maps for them to show how relationships happen between various communities or how we'd started projects and how they'd moved on to something else. They were really interested in that. And then I also talked about um, budgeting and how budgeting is a roadmap for what you want to do. And I'd been doing budgeting my whole life. I'd been at Perseverance Theater then for 19 years and knew it from the ground up. So going from a million to 10 million the level of resources, tremendous. It's just another zero, though. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, it is. Yeah. In some way, because it's still about people. It's still about artists. It's still about programming. It's all those other things. So anyway, I guess to answer your question, it's been a constant dialogue between myself, the board, the artists, the, you know, the incredible staff that works here at Arena Stage to help move a quite different agenda forward. Because remember, this was a theater company that did international work. It was really known for Shaw, Chekhov, and Ibsen. It had had a long-term resident company for 40 years. And then when Doug Wager came in, because of what was happening with the NEA and a lot of other things, the company became far too expensive for the theater to handle. So during his seven-year tenure, there was a focusing down in that area. So when I came in, it was an entirely different artistic agenda to focus on American work. But that company had been disbanded before you arrived. Yes. Your friend Ann Bogart had to, when she went up to Trinity, faced an existing company and it was... A real problem for her yes. to fit into that. So, so you had a certain amount of the decks had been cleared yes. for you by the time that you got here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm fascinated by is so much of our conversation is about the institutions. It's not about you saying I wanted to direct this play or you know I got a chance to do this and. Here at Arena, if I follow correctly, you have done one or two shows a season you've directed. Um, It's not about you making a big personal statement as a director, but really as a producer. Is that fair to say? Well, I think what's inside of me all the time is the artist. So whatever I do, Howard whether it's the creation of a meal for friends, whether it's the way in which my partner and I design our home, or whether it is the creation of a new theater piece, it's always me as an artist working. So in a funny way, I don't separate the two, although I know when one of them is taking 
is more focused on the side. And I think myself as a director, I think that's what drives me internally all the time. I'm a driver driver. That's my personality type. I like I like drive. I like that. I like that. I like I like moving. And the part of me over the last couple of years as a director has really had to move back a bit in order to complete this. And then the part of me as a director is really coming out now mm-hmm. much, much more. Uh, seven or eight years ago, I would, have, I would say that that was a big shift in me artistically when I decided to really approach the musical theater. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. And I think that the other piece that is, that is just in gestation now is there is a part of me that will start moving back into belt theater pieces now. Hmm. So that's on the horizon for me, and I can feel it internally. I really trust my gut when it's time for something new. And I'll start directing a couple shows a year, and, of course, I also have directed a lot in Canada. So it hasn't always been in my uh, in my home theater that I'm directing. Well, I want to take a minute to ask about the musicals, because you're doing the classics, of the musicals. You're, you're not doing the Washington production of Spring Awakening. You're not right. doing uh, the Washington production of Passing Strange. You're doing things like Camelot, which you've said was something you'd seen early on, yeah. and, and South Pacific uh, a number of years ago. And you chose as your inaugural production coming back home into the Mead Center, um, Oklahoma. What is it that you find interesting, given the adventurousness and the newly created work, in these long-established works? I think that that's a very deep question. And it deserves a long answer because it it has an aha at the, at the end of it. My... Family, the Mead family, uh, who've uh, named this center, Suzanne, my partner, other people have often said to me, you need to be directing musicals. And I had always rejected musicals, even though I was brought into the theater in uh, musicals. That was part of the fire for me early on. When I was in my 20s, I believed that theater, um, Serious theater was only straight plays. I rejected the American musical. I didn't think that was important. I thought that it was entertainment. And um, I would produce musicals, but I rejected them. I rejected the form. And uh, when I came to Arena, I knew, because the musical is our seminal art form, it is our creative art form, I knew that I would be producing musicals, and yet I was still shying away from uh, directing them. And um, as I said, the Mead family, Gil and Jay Lee, uh, Suzanne, other people said, there's something in your personality that really is about the American musical and you need to try one. So finally I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try one. Because I went into uh, directing musicals because I had a realization of what was happening to audiences during musicals. And that was happening at Perseverance Theater. That was happening here at Arena Stage with productions like Guys and Dolls, and that is the kinetic relationship between the audience and the actor. And I thought, 
That's interesting to me. So when I directed South Pacific, I woke up about three days into directing, popped my head up and said to Suzanne, I was born to direct musicals. (laughs) And I think the reason why is because what I realized about the musical theater form is that it is infinitely subversive. As an experimenter, and I would call myself as an experimenter, that's where I live, you can say things in the American musical you could never say in any other form. Because as the audience is listening and responding to the music, there are things embedded in these brilliant American musicals that say very, very deep things about who we are as Americans, who we are as far as race, who we are as far as racism, the way in which we operate. And in a sense, that's what drew me in. It's fascinating. You know, that's exactly what Gene Roddenberry said about Star Trek and science fiction. Wow. <laughs> that you could slip in messages Absol- because uh, people, where people weren't looking for them. Absolutely. And, and the aha, because I just want to finish this, because this is a major aha mm-hmm. for me recently, and I haven't spoken about it publicly, is that the other day somebody was asking me about my past work and my present work, And they said, so what are you doing with the American musical? I said, I think that I needed a form that would fit in the world of Washington, D.C., where I could continue my work as an experimenter, because I think that's what I'm doing with the American musical. I promised earlier that we would come back to this discussion of new plays and what that has meant and there is this broad program here funded largely by the Mellon Foundation that goes into so many different aspects of new plays and I urge people to go to the website arenastage.org to learn all of the things that you're doing because we don't have the time to talk about them but tell me specifically about the residency program. The residency program is part of our American uh, Voices uh, program, and uh, we have we have an institute, a new play institute, that is all about really focusing on the infrastructure of how we create new plays and new musicals in this country. And part of that is the Playwrights Residency Program. Uh, we have brought in five very strong writers over a three-year period of time where they can write whatever they want. Uh, They can write plays uh, for Arena Stage. They can write plays for other organizations that they're working with. Um, And those writers are Katori Hall and Amy Freed, Charles Randolph Wright, uh, Lisa Crone, Karen Zacharias. So each one of the writers has come in with really everything from the American musical, one-person plays, plays based on interviews, uh, adaptations, and they've been given a full-time salary, a good full-time salary, to be part of the ongoing life of the organization and to write. They've been given health care if they don't have health care, housing when they're here in Washington, D.C., a young producer to work alongside them during that three-year period of time, and also they are able to... Uh, utilize funding. They have their own funding within this to be able to make decisions about the kind of uh, readings or workshops that they want to do. So, for example, Amy Freed, we had a reading of two of her plays a week ago, and she wanted to bring in three uh, actors 
who really understand her voice that we also teamed with Washington, D.C. actors. So very important to her. Uh, Karen Zacharias, uh, this summer, really wanted to go back to one of her older plays, do a complete and total and deep rewrite. And then we had a four-day uh, workshop with eight actors to work on that. So we're following the artist here. We're mm. following what the artist knows they need to do next. There is so much more I wish we had time to talk about. We've been chatting in uh, really the entryway to the newest theater <laughs> at Arena Stage, the Kogod Cradle, which is a beautiful space. And it was pointed out to me that it was influenced a bit by the sculptures of Richard Serra. And I feel like we've been sitting talking in a Richard Serra sculpture for the past hour. But all of the building is extraordinary. And what you have done here is extraordinary. And Molly Smith, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. This was a great interview. Post-production for this Downstage Center program is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded on location at Arena Stage's Mead Center for American Theater in Washington, D.C. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of WING programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.